With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball. From growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with The Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod, Pina, who has been writing for 538 and GQ for months and months and months. Michael, you never stop. Well, hey, we've got some actual, I would say, some real news to discuss this week. We hopped into the offseason on a good note because there's been some coaching hires. I would say none more needle moving than the New Orleans Pelicans decision to hire Stan Van Gundy out of the broadcast booth, out of uh, retirement uh, following the, uh, you know, the Detroit Pistons saga that he oversaw there for a few years. And now he has been installed as Zion Williamson's second professional coach. Uh, He inherits a Pelicans team that's incredibly young, that's coming off a very, very disappointing run through the NBA bubble where they uh, kind of flamed out in in ugly fashion and did not uh, make the playoffs as many had hoped or even force a play-in game. And um, they're kind of at a crossroads with a whole bunch of their players. They have an interesting roster, some veterans, but a lot of young pieces, guys who uh, I think most people would say underperform next year. And I'm curious, Michael, off the top, Does this match between organization and coach happen without Zion? In other words, is this entire marriage here between Stan Van Gundy and the New Orleans Pelicans, does it all boil down to the thrill of coaching Zion Williamson? Hmm, Yeah, that's an interesting way to frame it. Obviously, what's really important here in the NBA right now is to have head coaches uh, foster really productive relationships with their franchise player um, and to be egoless uh, in those relationships. So, I mean, I kind of look at it just as we kind of forget how good Stan Van Gundy has been as a coach throughout his career. And so I feel like if you're New Orleans, whether you have Zion or not, the opportunity to get this guy 
um, is kind of a no-brainer. And, you know, we can, we're going to probably dig a little bit deeper here, but just, you know, I think the, uh, the stain of Detroit and the experiment there with where he had personnel decisions, he was kind of his own worst enemy. Um, but this is a really good, really, really, really good coach. And uh, I think he will be able to instill some of the principles, particularly on the defensive end, that the New Orleans Pelicans were lacking last year. Yeah, so the reason why I frame it as like Zion being the magnet here for Stan Van Gundy is I do agree. He's such a good coach. I'm not sure he would give the New Orleans Pelicans the time of day if not for Mm -hmm. Zion, right? And I'm not sure the Pelicans would be in the conversation able to interview some of the most attractive coaching candidates like they did this summer if not for the presence of Zion. I mean, if you look back on that franchise's history, uh, they have not had very many decorated NBA head coaches. I think probably the best head coach in terms of like record and postseason accomplishments that they've ever had previously was Byron Scott. Um, you know, some of their recent hires, you know, Monty Williams, they, they gave a shot to. Alvin Gentry was sort of like giving him another chance after he had been out of the head coaching game for a mm-hmm. while. So that it has not necessarily been a destination market for coaches. And yet when you're looking at some of the names on the market this summer, I don't know how you feel, but, uh, you know, if Ty Lue was sort of the the most coveted name among current coaches or a Doc Rivers is maybe, uh, you know, a guy who gets swooped up pretty quickly, like Stan Van Gundy kind of compares with those guys uh, pretty well. And he's been rumored, oh, is he going to make a comeback or not uh, these last few years? And it seems like there wasn't a job that maybe kind of titillated him that got him excited. And I think this one did. I mean, you, you hear him talk about it and he's just sort of going right down the list of their young players, whether it's Lonzo Ball, Brandon Ingram, Zion Williamson. And I think if you're a coach, you can look at any of those guys and say, they did not live up to their potential last year. If I come in and, and fix things up, establish a, li- a little bit better of a culture, this could be a team that that takes off, that has a chance to make the playoffs and, and fulfill those expectations that we all thought um, they might be able to do in the middle of last season. I also think that your point on looking at Stan Van Gundy's entire body of work is important. Uh, things ended very poorly in Detroit, and they ended. Yep. Be- they were Stan Van Gundy's fault. I mean, he was the executive up there. He was making a lot of short-sighted, risky decisions to bring on a Blake Griffin to invest heavily in a Reggie Jackson. He was trying to win. Now he was trying to fulfill, I believe, an ownership mandate to you know get that team back into the playoffs, sort of by any means necessary. There's a lot of comparisons you can draw, by the way, between what happened to Stan Van Gundy in Detroit and what Tom Thibodeau was going through with Minnesota, where it's just like you're leveraging, um, you know, future assets to try to just, you know, uh, bump things up in the short term. And that caught up with him uh, very badly. But I think it's important for him to step back, think about what went well in Detroit. um, And he was still, you know, making a big impact as a coach in that situation and realizing what are his strengths, what are his weaknesses, and to kind of swallow his pride a little bit. Because ultimately, that's what he's doing here. You know, he, he's taking a step back from that dual role, which he was able to get in Detroit, and he's focusing solely on coaching. And again, I think if you don't have Zion um, in that mix, that's probably too much to swallow if you're him, right? I Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, just looking back real quick at the Detroit, his tenure there, it's like, if you could imagine, say, someone like David Griffin uh, making the draft picks or signing the free agents and understanding, uh, you know, what is an overpay, uh, you know, signing John Luer to a contract that just didn't make a lot of sense, for example, or drafting uh, Luke Kennard uh, over um, over someone like Donovan Mitchell, um, you know, they're, they're, it's like it just it was so clear 
in watching him perform that duty that it was necessary to have separate parties, you know, separate people with those responsibilities. So, um, you know, I, I look at Stan and I think like one of the other things that we forget is that this is a guy who easily could have been the head coach of the Golden State Warriors. Like after he was let go by the Orlando Magic and he pretty much was the the hottest commodity going as a, a head coach free agent, you know, he interviews for Golden State. Steve Kerr is interviewing with the New York Knicks. And, you know, the only reason that Stan took the job in Detroit was because they gave him all that power and he wanted that power in Golden State. They wouldn't give it to him. So there's a lot of like really interesting what ifs here. And we would look at Stan Van Gundy so much differently, obviously, if he took that Golden State job. Well, yeah, because he's still there coaching it, right? Because they've been overseeing yes. <laughs> a, a dynasty for sure. No, I'm with you on that. So was there anyone else that was linked to the Pelicans who you would have preferred them to hire over Stan Van Gundy? Or do you view this as kind of their dream pick? I think, you know, before... First of all, I didn't really consider Stan an option. I mean, like, his name really popped up late in the process. Like, I thought that Ty Lu was one of the more attractive options uh, back when we were just kind of looking at candidates. This was even pre-Doc Rivers uh, uh, getting fired uh, by the Clippers. Um, so I thought Ty Lu was a really intriguing candidate. Um, you know, I, I go back to maybe Mike D'Antoni, but not so much. I just think that that would be a really intriguing fit just stylistically and what they could do if they played really fast. But you know, I think defense was just a really big issue um, and kind of offensive discipline was a really big issue. So I don't know if Mike D'Antoni would have had the patience there to basically run the same style that Alvin Gentry, his former assistant coach, did. So, um, yeah, when no- Anthony Davis comes out during the playoffs and is like, it's so nice to play like on a winning team. When I was in New Orleans, we never played any defense and we always lost early in the first <laughs> round. It's pretty difficult to then like turn around and hire Mike D'Antoni. Um, yeah. I, th- I think what you're saying, though, would you also see some a level of alignment, though, between a David Griffin and a Stan Van Gundy? I mean, if we go off nothing else than their Twitter feeds, which I think are both like, <laughs> you know, pretty entertaining and pretty mind expanding and pretty heartfelt and compassionate yeah. in a lot of ways. Like, I think those guys, you know, are really going to have a bond. But I think the most important bond here is this idea of can Stan Van Gundy be the guy who can hold Zion a little bit more accountable? Because when we came out of the bubble, we looked at some of the the problems on defense that you were describing or the turnover issues on offense, the lack of discipline that you're describing. And we're saying like, they need someone who's a little bit tougher. Like these guys are not listening to Alvin. You know, he's uh, upset in press conferences, but it doesn't seem like it's really getting through to the players. Maybe they've tuned him out. I do feel like with Stan Van Gundy, There is a cachet that comes not from the fact that he's been on television or in the media, but just comes from like the force of his personality. I do think Mm -hmm. he's the kind of guy who just commands a room. And that's a cliche that people like to use when, uh, you know, talking about coaches and leaders. But that's like a a real thing. I mean, you can you can feel it um, in a different way. And I definitely think he's going to get those guys attention. And I just think he's going to set a higher standard and a higher bar for what needs to be done defensively than what they've had there previously. And so I'm hopeful that that winds up producing some really interesting results because I think Zion can be a, a fascinating defensive player, especially if he's in shape. And I think ultimately that's the biggest question is, can Stan Van Gundy have uh, some success in molding Zion Williamson's body or molding his weight training program mm-hmm. or molding his diet 
in ways that the Pelicans didn't have success last year. And I'm sure this is the number one issue on all of their minds there in New Orleans. If it's not, Mm -hmm. um, they're kind of missing the whole point, right? Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, conditioning is a huge... I mean, Stan Van Gundy spent years with the Miami Heat and Heat culture. He was assistant for Pat Riley. He was the head coach of the Heat, um, the team that went on to win the championship in 2006. He was famously relieved of his duties by Pat Riley uh, after, I think, 21 games. So, uh, you know, he's all about conditioning. He knows what that is. Getting Zion in shape is absolutely critical. Um, I actually have a a real quick Stan Van Gundy stat for you uh, that just I was, you know, I was looking at his career record and his numbers and just where he stands historically. Um, Every head coach who has more playoff wins than Stan Van Gundy in their career is either in the Hall of Fame or for just like absolutely no reason is not in the Hall of Fame. So like um, there's like one or two guys like Casey Jones of the Boston Celtics. Got to got to shut up my guy. Um, But only 23 coaches have more playoff wins than Stan Van Gundy and basically all are in the Hall of Fame. So um, this guy's pedigree uh, is just incredible. He probably should have won an NBA championship either in 2006 or when he took the Orlando Magic to the finals in 2009 or that 2010 team that was really good. Um, So I think from just a respect level also, because like Zion should obviously have uh, immense respect for whoever's going to be the head coach, because whoever's going to be the head coach is going to have to like ride him and not coddle him because I I don't think that that is the recipe here. I think this dude needs to be like just uh, run through the fire right now. He needs to be in shape. That's absolutely a, a prerequisite for his own success. And I think that Stan doesn't turn off Zion um, and maybe turn off some of the other young players on the roster and get everybody to buy in. It's just it's a perfect it's a perfect relationship. Well, so that's where I was going to go. I think if there's any question here, it's whether you know Stan Van Gundy at basically sixty, right? Mm-hmm. Is he re-entering an NBA that's a different NBA? So, you know, in terms of his track record, you're right. Like there was multiple opportunities for him to win a title as a head coach. It didn't happen. Um, he last won a playoff series in 2010. Now he made the playoffs in 2016, but the Pistons got swept. Um, his yeah. pre- his last couple stops in Orlando or last couple seasons in Orlando, uh, they go out in the first round. I believe some injury issues were involved there. A lot has changed in the NBA from 2010 to 2020. Are you confident that what worked for Stan Van Gundy uh, in 2010 will still work? Or are you confident in his ability to adapt? Or do you feel like this is sort of the biggest hangup? Well, it's not like Stan was under a rock (laughs) the last 10 years. You know, I mean, obviously coached the Pistons. Uh, I think that their personnel was... He was hamstrung by the personnel in trying to play a super modern way just with the bigs that they had. Andre Drummond, obviously, I think was, you know, a disaster uh, for segments, um, especially with the partnership with Blake, um, who is not, I mean, that's a power forward who doesn't really stretch as much as you would like, although he improved that area of his game later on in his career. Um, So I think that you know, with the right personnel, and I think New Orleans has the right personnel, you know, playing Zion at the five, I, I, you know, I think Stan is smart enough to know that he can do that. Um, You know, using Jackson Hayes the right way, using Brandon Ingram the right way, playing fast, shooting threes. Uh, Hopefully they're able to re-sign J.J. Redick, who has a really strong relationship with Stan, going back to their time in Orlando. Uh, So I think that 
you look at the i mean just like the way he talks as uh, an analyst on television he clearly knows where the nba is and what's what's the right way to play what's the wrong way to play yeah this is someone well who, we should give him credit for being one of the forefathers of it too right i mean they went I was about to, the, to say yeah yeah they went to the stretch four with in orlando and they went to the the high volume three-pointers in orlando 12 13 14 years ago mm-hmm Yep, uh, Hito Turkoglu, stretch four. Um, Dwight just kind of, you know, he obviously posted up a little bit more than I think Stan would have liked, but the rim-rolling big who really focuses on on blocking shots, getting rebounds, playing defense. Dwight was the best defender uh, of his generation, understand. Um, so, yeah, I mean, launching threes, playing four out. It, it, he, this dude really knows what's up. And he's, he's, he's ahead, of his, ahead of the curve analytically as well, which is really smart. And it's kind of what you need in a head coach right now. Yeah, I think that um, I'm, I'm with you on all of that. I also, the main reason why I'm optimistic about this job is because I just do think they underperformed last year. And so, like, if you, even if you just brought in, like, a, a baseline kind of replacement level coach, I feel like there's room for improvement. And I think that Stan Van Gundy is clearly better than that. I was very reluctant to blame the bubble for just about any team. Uh, and how they performed there, right? Like everyone's got to, you know, play by the same rules, deal with the same hotels mm-hmm. and all those kinds of things. I think when you have veteran teams with big expectations like Houston and Philly or the, even the Clippers especially, or even the Bucks, really, any of those teams, I think they have to kind of own what happened in the bubble. Like you have to go there, you're on a, a championship push, you know, you've got to be focused, you've got to be able to make the best of a, a weird situation and get through it. I think if there's any team that I'm kind of willing to give a pass for for the bubble, it might be the Pelicans. Now they were they you know it was uglier than just about any other uh, you know team out there, but they were super young. They had never really been through adversity together. Zion Williamson you know sucked up so much of the oxygen around that team in terms of the hype and the attention, and he has to leave the bubble and then come back in. He's not necessarily in great shape. And they just were disjointed for a whole bunch of reasons and super duper young. Like if there was any team out there that wasn't going to play well in the bubble or adapt very well to the bubble, it seems like it's that team, especially because they never completely set their roles when Zion was back healthy, right? Like everybody was still adjusting to sort of like what they were supposed to do when they played with Zion. So, and he wasn't even playing his normal minutes. So for all those reasons, I'm not giving them a pass. I do think that they needed to make a coaching change. I'm glad they did. Um, But I also think that, like, again, it's just more reason for optimism. Like, I look at them. They should be in the playoffs next year, I think, in in the Western Conference. Um, Now, that doesn't mean they're going to be a five seed, but I think they should be in the mix for the eight seed. They were um, tracking towards that before the shutdown. Um, Would you agree, or do you think that they're still kind of another year away? Uh, I mean, <laughs> there's like 13 teams in the West who I just want to say, like, I I lock you in to the playoffs next season. Um, I'm high on New Orleans for sure. I think, obviously, it goes without saying that uh, Zion's health is very key and his ability to play over 30 minutes a night is also key. Are they going to load manage him? I mean, the on-off numbers during the regular season before the shutdown were just, like, astronomical for him. His impact was so great. So uh, I think Zion's a key X factor. Uh, Lonzo Ball played so poorly in the bubble, and we'll need to bounce back. Um, But, I mean, to your point, like, they had, I think, three players test positive for coronavirus uh, before the bubble. They had, um, obviously, Zion leave, come back. He was 
winded after like two or three jaunts up the floor. So I think that this team is really good. I'm really interested to see kind of what style they play. Are they going to play as fast as they did under Gentry? Are they going to slow it down a little bit? Um, which I think might be a mistake given their personnel. Um, and will they buy in defensively and and not turn the ball over as they did? Uh, so I, I just think it's a really fascinating team. Uh, I think with the benefit of training camp, uh, Stan Van Gundy is just a really smart, uh, ingenious forward-thinking uh, mind, basketball mind, and he could get them on the right track. But like I think a lot of making the playoffs is just like it's attrition right now in the Western Conference so whoever's healthiest whoever gets the ball to bounce on a random January night or whatever in the middle of the season um, to win a random game might be the eighth seed versus the ninth seed so I could see them in the picture for sure no very very fair I guess we should say they should view themselves as a playoff team heading into the season that needs to be the clear expectation that's what they should want to do I'm sure that's going to be Stan Van Gundy's message just kind of knowing how he approaches things um, I will also say, look, if I'm going to give them a pass a little bit for the bubble, they better all show up in shape. And that starts with Zion Williamson to training camp, right? Look, you, you guys left early. You were out of there in July. You had a lot of time to get yourself right before this coming season, whenever it does start. So I, I want everybody in tip-top shape, ready to rock in, in training camp with that team specifically. Otherwise, I revoke my pass that I'm giving them for the bubble. And I just... <laughs> I just uh, flip out on them completely. Hey, there was another coaching hire that was generating probably 2% of of the attention, I would say. Um, The Indiana Pacers hired Nate Bjorkren. Um, Hopefully I'm saying that right. Uh, A Toronto Raptors assistant coach and kind of longtime understudy of Nick Nurse or that they have a lot of shared history, you know, going back through the, the G League and anytime people mention Iowa, you know, you're getting a grinder, right? And there's a lot of Iowa ties there. Before we get into sort of was this a good hire, what is uh, you know Indiana's outlook like and all that, do we know what's going on there with the Pacers right now? I mean, the idea of like you know trying to make the playoffs was the goal. They make the playoffs. It seemed like Nate McMillan over delivered given how little uh, time he had with uh, Victor Oladipo this season. He gets uh, you know an All Star level season out of Sabonis. Things are going great with Brogdon. You know, he, he pretty much takes that thing as far as it could go. I can't imagine they expected more against the Miami Heat in the playoffs, given the state of their roster and, and some of the issues that they had. He gets an extension, then weeks later, they part ways with him. Now they're hiring a coach that basically no one had ever heard of, uh, if you go back to last week, right? What is going on with the Pacers? How do you explain that series of events, Michael? Yeah, I mean, what it looks like to me is cost-cutting and so if I were a Pacers fan I would be ready for a rebuild I don't like I don't think that they are you know maybe Victor Oladipo looks super incredible and offering him a max contract is just a no-brainer but I would imagine that their mentality right now is not necessarily to resign or even aggressively try to resign Victor Oladipo. Um, so, you know, you move him and I think they'll try to still be competitive, but getting pieces back for Oladipo that could help them. Uh, I mean, this payroll is really high too. So we could see, you know, there's been Miles Turner's name has been in rumors for, I guess, like basically since he signed that contract, uh, 
to be their starting center. Um, so Miles Turner could be dealt. Uh, I, I mean, I wouldn't really say anyone is a lock to stay put on this team right now. I, I mean, Sabonis is obviously a mainstay and a really young, talented all-star. I'd be surprised if they moved him or even Malcolm Brogdon. Um, but like, I just see like them understanding where they are right now and they'll try to compete to make the playoffs, but I, I, I could see them having a semi-mini little fire sale before the trade deadline as well. That just doesn't make a lot of sense to kind of make this type of hire and, and still make the push for the playoffs that someone would expect a team like the Indiana Pacers to make. It's a really tough spot because Oladipo is basically in his prime. He's coming off of two all-star seasons for the Pacers. He's coming off of multiple injuries that he suffered as a member of the Pacers, you know, trying to come back and, and be the mm-hmm. face of that team. He felt like he was a franchise guy. He embraced the um, the return to Indiana angle after his college days, you know, coming uh, kind of from the unexpected trade from Oklahoma City. He was a good soldier all the way through, and yet I don't necessarily – fault the Pacers for not wanting to give this guy a max contract or not wanting to take care of him financially, you know, on a long-term deal going forward. Do you like, isn't there an awful lot of risk? I mean, it's a guy who averaged 14, three and four this season, um, you know, shooting lower than 40%, you know, shooting below average on three pointers. Now, obviously that's in limited minutes and he's not back healthy. Right. I, I just am worried that because of the injury issues, his best seasons are behind him and his best seasons were absolutely worth max money but if i have to commit going forward there would be a lot of reluctance for me if, especially if i was a, the indiana pacers in a small market you know probably cost conscious more than the average team i don't necessarily think that's bad business for them to go a different direction do you i guess like the question here is if you're the pacers if you max let's say oladipo has a bounce back here uh, this last season, this next season, and you know makes the All Star team, maybe even is like a third team All NBA guard, and he's just like a clear, you max this guy or you lose him type of free agent. Um, if you do re-sign him, I think he's twenty seven, twenty eight years old. Resign him to a four year max or something like that. Like, what is the ceiling there with a Sabonis, Oladipo, Brogdon, and I mean, like, I'm. Turner's under contract, but I kind of just assume that they're going to have to move him at some point. Um, like, what is the ceiling with that trio? Are you making the conference finals ever? Like, I, I just... Uh, it's a great question. It's a great way to put it. Um, I would say second round, you know, with, yeah. that, with that group. And I don't know how much the ceiling changes if you take Oladipo out. That's the tricky part, right? If you're telling me that you have, uh, you know, Brogdon and Sabonis and then quality role players around those guys... That feels like a team that can make the first round most years, right? Even if you're trading Turner on a cost-cutting situation. Like, it feels to me like you're in that solid six-seed mix. So now you're just kind of playing money ball with it, right? It's like if the marginal improvement uh, to go from, like, you know, a six-seed to a four-seed that can actually win a series is going to cost you a max contract for Oladipo and it's going to cost you paying up to keep Miles Turner— I can understand why you wouldn't want to do that, you know, and especially if you're, you know, a small market organization, especially if you're in a pandemic and you're not able to open your building up to all the fans coming in to, you know, to sell tickets and all that kind of stuff. I get where they're coming from. It is a kind of sad ending, though. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, this does feel like the writing is on the wall with Oladipo. And are you anticipating a trade coming up here in the next uh, couple months? I mean, have we seen the end of his era in uh, Indianapolis? 
I mean, it wouldn't surprise me at all. I mean, this is a tricky one, though, because what is his value? He's a free agent who's coming off an atrocious season because of the injury, injury prone. Um, so what are you getting back for someone who can become an unrestricted free agent the following summer? Like, I, I, I don't know. And then if he plays well enough to up his value, are you going to try to keep him because you are the Indiana Pacers and making the playoffs is like your DNA? Um, I don't know. I mean, I do like Aaron Holiday coming up behind him. He might be a pretty nifty replacement in a backcourt of, of Brogdon and Holiday for the future. We didn't mention TJ Warren yet, and TJ Warren was like, you know, Michael Jordan for the first <laughs> couple of weeks of the bubble. Uh, so well, that's what I'm added- saying. Like, if you're, if you're taking Oladipo out and you're saying, okay, well, now we can take care right. of TJ Warren and now he's part of our core, that's probably going to be a, a first-round playoff team. So we're probably in a, in a pretty solid spot. Yeah, I guess I, I look at it like this. I mean, you're retooling if you, if you trade Oladipo, but it's not necessarily a deep rebuild. You know, I don't know if losing him you know, sends you hurtling down the Eastern Conference standing. It's just in part because there's so many teams who are worse than you are in the Eastern Conference that like, you know, you you don't have that far to slide. Um, You know, I guess in a worst case scenario, maybe they're like the nine seed, right? They're kind of where the Wizards were this year. Um, And, you know, that would be a disappointment, but it's not the end of the world. When you're ranking their players, who do you view as like most untouchable from their group? Right. Because if we go back two years, it's like Oladipo and then everybody else is like a distant second. When I'm looking at their group right now, I almost might have Sabonis one. Like he might be the the number one guy, maybe Brogdon. Um, I mean, that's pretty close one, too. And then I think everybody else from there. I mean, TJ Warren's probably next in line. And then you're getting into, you know, Turner, who, who I think gets dock points because of his fit potentially with Sabonis. And then, you know, and then maybe Oladipo after all of this, you know, because they have shown they've been able to be pretty consistently uh, winning uh, even when he's been injured. Uh, Dub McDermott, stand up. No, I, I I agree with you. I think that I think no, Doma Sabonis is easily the, the number one guy here for me. Um, I think. You know, just you just look at the contract. He's making less than Malcolm Brogdon, like three, four million dollars per year through 2024. Um, only 24 years old, uh, was an All Star last year. Just like one of the more, um, I guess, like throwback bigs. I mean, like he's got touch, uh, but he's really back to the basket. And those guys, those types of players, I feel like are going to be more valuable as we go forward. Just. I think the league is going to s- slowly get bigger, and you're going to have to be able to defend someone like Domas Sabonis, particularly as he improves on the pivot. So, I, yeah, I think Sabonis is like easily the guy who I'm not trading, who's going to be my cornerstone. But at the same time, like, is Sabonis a top twenty player? I, you know, I'd have to look at it, but <laughs> I probably would not have him in the top twenty, maybe not the top twenty-five. So it's a little tricky here. Do you have a favorite landing spot for Oladipo? I've seen a couple different rumors. I mean, the Miami one seemed like it popped out first. Then I saw Milwaukee as a possible, um, you know, Eric Bledsoe upgrade. Any other ideas that you like if if he does get traded this upcoming offseason? I think Milwaukee is the most intriguing, particularly if he he gets back to being healthy and he looks good and, and all that. I mean, that's basically the player that Milwaukee let go with Brogdon. Oladipo healthy um back to what he was is a much better version or i shouldn't say much but a better version of what brogdon was two years ago for them so 
I think that that is the most intriguing. And if Victor Oladipo goes to uh, Milwaukee and he's healthy and he looks good and he makes an all-star team, I mean, that's a that's like a pretty significant big three there with Middleton, Giannis, and Oladipo. And that team would definitely be the favorite to come out of the Eastern Conference and might be the easy favorite to win the championship. So I think that's the most intriguing, but I, I just also am not sure where he is at physically. Um, and also like when you go from being the guy and this dude who wants the max contract going to Milwaukee where you're borderline the third option I just don't know how that would fit with him because he's 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 gonna want to take his shots and get his numbers that's just like what it is right now he's at that point in his career he wants that max contract so that could be also a pretty interesting variable here that could actually work in Milwaukee's favor. Like, we need contract push uh, Victor Oladipo <laughs> to, like, bring it all out and get us through. I actually kind of like that trade a lot. If you're John Horst, do you go to Kevin Pritchard and, and say, like, look, man, we just handed you Malcolm Brogdon on a platter. Like, you have to <laughs> do us a solid and, like, send us back Oladipo, right? Um, I guess the tricky part, just from Indiana's perspective, is is there anything that Milwaukee has that you're really interested in? I mean, maybe it's future picks. Um, yeah, no, it's it's Bledsoe and all the future picks, like a, a crap ton of future picks with as, as minimal protections as you can get. Maybe even um, uh, Dante DiVincenzo, if you can if you can squeeze him as well. That's what I would be looking for if I was Indiana. Yeah, if you're Milwaukee and your options are somehow try to put together some crazy package to get Chris Paul, which is going to require taking on a lot of money. I mean, this almost feels like the budget, maybe slightly higher upside, but also maybe this is better. A, a yeah. lower basement. Uh, like this could backfire if Oladipo is not healthy, right? But I think this could also be sort of a game changer. I guess if I'm Milwaukee, I'm going for it. I think you talked me into it. Even though I'm a little bit down on Oladipo and worried about his health and everything else, he's not going to be worse than Bledsoe in the playoffs. There's no way. <laughs> Like that's, no, like, that's it's a, a guaranteed upgrade. You know, it's impossible to, to do worse. It's it's a very low bar. Um, yeah, no, I, I think this needs to happen now. Now that I'm getting like very hyped talking about this, um, even with the fact that I, I, I think it would be a devastating outcome for the Boston Celtics potentially. I just have to throw that in there. It's just my <laughs> emotional well-being. But I'm very, I would be very excited about this trade. Um, I do want to, again, like double down and just say like, chemistry matters will Victor Oladipo buy in and be that dude who's just not taking the shot in end of games who doesn't have the ball in his hands at the end of games um maybe they make it work and everything's fine uh but that would just be a super intriguing situation I'm with you for sure they would have to sort through it but Milwaukee could kind of use the ball in his hands a little bit more late in games right like if he's back to where he was in 2017 and 18 that's a huge if and I don't know if he's ever going to get back there but Milwaukee had a lot of late game problems in part because they were so predictable. You know, just having a little bit of my turn, your turn stuff. I actually think if, if Oladipo was healthy and playing great, he might be that number two guy and Middleton would be the one to sacrifice a little bit more. And he's always being asked to sacrifice, but I think he's been okay with that in, in different spots. Um, and I think in late game situations, you know, Oladipo had some real success in Indiana. Milwaukee would love that. Um, I guess it all really comes down to Oladipo's health. I mean, he never looked right to me this past season. I, I think he was... Yeah. Uh, not good in the playoffs, you know, not nearly what we were hoping for and kind of rushed his way back into it and all that stuff, uh, which was unfortunate. I I guess now I'm rooting just for a change of scenery for him and and really for everybody. You know, I think it'll be really depressing. You know, as we're exploring the excitement around a possible, uh, you know, trade of Oladipo to Milwaukee, if he winds up back in Indiana this season, that's going to be just horrible. So don't do that. (laughs) Just just trade this guy. Cut him free. Free Oladipo. 
Yeah, no. Uh, free all the depot. Put it on a t-shirt. Can I ask you a quick question? Please. Um, now that I'm just thinking about this hypothetical that absolutely needs to happen. If the Milwaukee Bucks trade for Victor Oladipo before the season begins, and then they go to Giannis and they say, here's the Supermax, does, do you think that that impacts his decision at all with, with the Supermax? Like, if you're Milwaukee, you're basically like, look, let's say they give up, you know, two unprotected first-round picks or something crazy. Like, they pay this huge price. They're really invested in winning it all this year for him. And you, you basically let him know, like, we are so invested in winning. Uh, we want you here for the long haul. Uh, we If, you know, we don't see re-signing Victor as, 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 as a difficult prospect because you're such a great player, et cetera, et cetera. Like, does Giannis then sign the Supermax because you get Oladipo, or is he still just like, I'm, I'm in wait-and-see mode? Well, I think if you're going to do that, you need a super cut of Oladipo highlights explicitly from 2018 right (laughs) like you need to make sure that like the all the messaging is like this guy is the top 10 player that he was three years ago and you know he's a two-way force incredible defensive impact you know steals and all that stuff and um you know great shot making you know game winners i mean you have to you have to really sell that part hard because the 2020 version of oladipo is not someone who's going to, you know, put uh, Giannis over the edge. It's an interesting question, though. Remember, because Sam Presti traded for Oladipo thinking that that was going to be the move to keep Kevin Durant in Oklahoma City. Do you remember that? And uh, that one didn't work out. So I, I, I would I would guess that, uh, you know, the, the Giannis Supermax signing would uh, would not be influenced in a similar way. I also just think if you're Giannis, it's, it's a good time to wait. There's so much weirdness going on with the um, the pandemic. What's next season going to look like? Where are they going to play it? I mean, all these unanswered questions. Committing during that sort of uncertainty, I would just feel uncomfortable doing it, especially if I was him and I had all the leverage in the world and I knew Milwaukee was always going to be there no matter what. I would just want to see how things shake out. You know what I mean? And I, I don't think that Oladipo is a big enough, like a blockbuster type move to make me want to immediately mm-hmm. re-up. It, it just wouldn't It wouldn't uh, move me that way. What about you? Would it uh, be enough? No. If I'm honest, I am like already just, I'm on Zillow looking at the Dallas area oh, the suburbs boy. of dallas i'm i'm yeah i'm seeing what's good with the property Wait, values so there. you've had a couple of weeks to think about it uh, since the <laughs> end of the season and we've had more than a month to think about it since the end of the bucks uh run you're yeah. all in on on Giannis to the mavericks it's a done deal you want him in the big yeah. three with luca and and porzingis I mean, it's a big two plus Porzingis, but uh, yeah, I I think that this needs to happen. It would be just like the most aesthetically pleasing basketball team like in recent history uh, and a joy. <laughs> I mean, like, I don't know who wouldn't want to watch this besides every other GM in the NBA. Like it, it would just be glorious basketball. Who doesn't want it? Fair question. I mean, I did see a story this week by Tim Cato of The Athletic who was kind of making the argument against it. I'm sure that riled up a lot of Mavericks fans. Um, It's not a perfect fit because of the Porzingis question. Like You're playing awfully big if you have both those guys. And in the playoffs, you might be in a situation where you really want to play Giannis at the five. But if you do have Luka and Giannis on the same roster, you can figure out every problem, right? You can solve every problem eventually. Like, it's, it's, you're going to be in a great spot. I worry about it from Giannis's standpoint because you would be joining Luka's team. And that's a, a weird look. I mean, this is not going to be a takeover where everybody views it as like Giannis's Mavericks. And 
that's a change. You know, he's, he's wait, been, wait, wait, can I, can I, can I jump in? But you, you are pro, if I recall, KD going to Golden State, right? I'm, I'm, I'm pro everyone doing whatever they want. Okay, I'm, okay. especially if you have, uh, you know, your free agency and you're not forcing trades during the middle of the season. You're playing by the rules and all that stuff. Whatever makes you happy makes you happy. I'm just worried from, you know, a protective impulse of Giannis's reputation that he's going to get all this <laughs> uh-huh. backlash from all these critics and haters, similar to what KD got and similar to what Anthony Davis got, but to a lesser degree this year in terms of like, hey, you're not good enough to be a number one guy. You've got to go play on someone else's team. And I just, you know, I think that the entire world needs to realize how entrenched already Luka is there. I feel like the Mavericks could trade for LeBron and it would still be Luka's team at this point, right? (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, he's like basically the savior in there. Okay, I'm being a little bit facetious, but you know what I'm saying, right? Like if you're saying who is like a, a player who you is synonymous with his market and his uh, organization right now, I I really feel like Luka is like top two top three you know in in that scenario and so for a player like Giannis who's coming off of two MVPs you know it's no small thing to go and join someone else's team right and it was a similar dynamic that KD had I personally felt like KD was the best player throughout his tenure on the Golden State Warriors and, and people just didn't want to give him the credit because he was the new guy and that frustrated me but I think like a similar frustration would develop if Giannis went there and was playing at an MVP level again. But because he's not Luka, because he's not the wonder boy, because he's not the guy who is the homegrown player, he's just going to be viewed completely differently. And I think that's a hang up because these guys think about narrative. Mm-hmm. They think about reputation a lot. No, I, I mean, I, I don't think like I'm not like Giannis mentally. I don't think that he will leave ultimately at the end of the day. Um, I just really, really want to see it. I think it would unlock so many intriguing parts of Giannis's game, and like I don't know, it would just it would just be great. Like a, a playoff series. Hopefully, like LeBron is still at his elite level. A playoff series with Anthony Davis and LeBron versus Luca and Giannis. Like that is, I mean, what is better than that, Ben? Nothing is better than that. Well, certainly not the Eastern Conference if Giannis leaves. That's for sure. Um, oh, look, geez. we got a bunch of questions here from the Open Floor Globe. They emailed us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. And Michael, I do want to encourage everyone, you know, during the offseason, keep those questions coming. We got some great ones, but we'd love to hear from you guys. It just helps, you know, stimulate the conversations and get our uh, brainstorming sessions going. We got this question. It's kind of like an age-old debate from Miha in Berlin. I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. He writes, if Marc Gasol's career ended today, which of the Gasol brothers had the title of best basketball player in the family? It seemed like for a very long time, the clear answer was Pau. When the Grizzlies traded the rising Pau for the rights to Mark, who at that point was still playing in Europe, I saw this as just the latest example of the Lakers fleecing their competitors. Pau became Kobe's wingman and filled the void created by Shaq's departure. The Lakers immediately found their mojo again, um, and they won the 2009-2010 championships with Gasol playing a crucial role on both offense and defense. Meanwhile, the Grizzlies didn't make the playoffs in Mark's first two seasons. However, Mark had a breakthrough year in 2012, establishing himself as the defensive anchor on the grid and grind Grizzlies, who found their way to relevance in the West. He was a solid contributor on the offensive end, too. After it became clear that the Grizzlies team had peaked, Mark found his way to none other than the next NBA champions. In Toronto, he was a perfect fit and again played a crucial role, this time drawing on his experience, basketball IQ, leadership, passing, and outside shooting. While Powell always seemed like the finesse player and Mark was a bruiser, it now seems hard to argue that Mark isn't just as talented as his brother. 
So what do the raw numbers say? Well, Powell averaged 19, um, you know, 9.2 and 3.2 assists. Mark averaged 14.6, 7.6 rebounds, and 3.4 assists. They're similar on blocks, and Mark had a few more steals. Lo and behold, Powell is in his 20th NBA season while Mark's in his 13th. In terms of accolades, Powell essentially has double of everything that Mark has. Two championships to one, six all-star appearances to three, four all-NBAs to two. Powell was the rookie of the year while Mark was only on the first team all-rookie. However, Mark did get the defensive player of the year and an all-defensive nod. So after all of that breakdown, you know, Miha says, well, this is looking a little bit more one-sided than I expected, but what do you guys think? Could we argue that peak Mark was just as good as peak Pow? So I'm curious because this did come up, Michael, uh, quite a bit when uh, Mark not only won the title with the Toronto Raptors, but then went on to get the FIBA World Cup title with Spain and, and play such a leading role there. And Powell was not on that team, but Powell was at home kind of cheering him along. I think there was the the tendency to come along and say, well, you know what? Mark actually might be the better uh, Gasol brother. Do you agree with his sort of uh, argument that Powell's overall body of work is more impressive than Mark? And then if at their peaks, which one of those players would you prefer? So... I don't think that the margin between these two is exceptionally wide, um, or at least I I thought it was going to be a little bit wider before I looked at the numbers myself. I mean, the answer is Pau. Pau had a better career. Uh, I think Pau was superior at his peak. Uh, Mark's defense is really, you know, it's it's harder just to just like basically quantify defense. And for a stretch, I think it was obvious that Marcus Gasol was the best defensive center if not the best defensive player in the world which you know I don't think you could ever say about Pau Gasol um but like Pau at his apex was in my opinion the best player uh on a championship team in 2010 I thought he was the best player on that Lakers team um led the postseason in win shares was just unanswerable in the finals in particular game seven um they don't win that championship without him playing at that high level and him reaching that gear so even though mark won a title with the raptors last season i mean it was just a completely different role uh and a different phase of his career uh not in his prime still very important you know starting games but also uh, more up and down too right i mean there were some there were yeah. some not so great games for mark during that playoff run there were some awesome games and some really important defensive yeah. moments but it was uh it was not anything close to what Powell's title was no, not at all. Um, so, I mean, this is pretty, like, I feel like I'm, I guess, like, it's weird because watching Mark, I had more joy watching Marc Gasol play, and I, that's not even close to the same thing, and Pau Gasol was a really good passer, uh, statistically comparable to Mark. I just think, like, some of the passes that Mark would make with the talent that was around him and how he elevated his teammates, it was just a little bit different for me. And the way he was so synonymous with the grit and grind mentality and his relationship with Zach Randolph and all that, that was just awesome. Um, so I think it was just maybe well, easier. Well, let me ask you this. Would you say sure. that Mark is a more complete player uh, because of the, the defensive impact too? I mean, I think that Powell had his moments defensively earlier in his career, but Mark was yeah. the steadier like backline defensive piece and he adapted you know pretty darn well all things considered to kind of the modernization of the nba he held up pretty well throughout that process you know got the defensive player of the year got the all defensive nominations i mean uh would you say he was a more complete player for that reason or no 
I think that might be fair. I think later in his career, Pau Gasol was... I mean, Pau Gasol is a really good rebounder uh, and, like, really... I mean, he's, what, like, 7'9"? I mean, he's huge. So, like, he was a really good rim protector, and particularly once he got to the Spurs and even with the Bulls before that, he was just a really smart um, positional backline defender. Like, Marc Gasol was genius. <laughs> like, there's just... He was once in a generation uh, with his type of defensive impact and the teams that he had. So um, maybe I would I think I would say that Marc Gasol was a more complete basketball player at the end of the day. And he did play in a later era where it was just more acceptable uh, and encouraged for him to shoot threes. Whereas Powell, I don't think, ever really had such of an opportunity. Um, but at the end of the day, like Powell's Powell's better. Do you agree? I agree. I think Powell is the better player. He had the better peak. He had the more impressive individual accomplishments. He had the larger role on title teams. I would also say, you know, a word of caution in terms of comparing their statistics. Like, I think if you take, you know, mid-20s Powell and you put him in the modern NBA, like when he was 25, he made his first all-star team. He averaged 20 at nine. East. Like, I feel like, in, and that was in 2006, right? Like, I think if you drop him in 2020, that same player, he's probably averaging, mm-hmm. what, 26 and 12, you know, 26 oh, and 13, yeah. just because of the faster pace uh, when he was young and mobile and versatile. I think that the biggest edge he had over his brother is just the natural scoring instincts, right? I mean, at times, especially later in his career, Marcus Alt was almost like a reluctant shooter, a reluctant scorer. Mm-hmm. And Powell just had every move in the book. And he was uh, very energetic. I mean, he would hit the offensive glass too, second chance points, the length that you mentioned, finishing lobs. There was a smooth and a grace to his game. I do think Mark was a better passer, but not by much. I mean, Powell was a phenomenal passer. And I, I think that he just, prime Powell worked in a lot of different looks and would have had success in lots of different lineups. And um, so I think for all those reasons, um, I'm going Powell, but... The fact that Mark has made it a conversation is pretty impressive, right? I mean, like, there shouldn't really be a conversation there, uh, given how good Powell was. And I think that they'll go into the Hall of Fame together, don't you think? I mean, both those guys are going to be Hall of Famers. That was my next question to you, because I do think that Powell Powell has to be in the Hall of Fame, right? Like, Oh, first ballot. He's a first ballot Hall of Famer. Powell's in the Hall. Um, I I don't know about Mark. I'd have to like do a little bit of a deeper look into that. I was a little taken aback that you were so confident, though. Well, first of all, they let all the international guys in. That's number sure. one. <laughs> and he's had a lot of success with the Spanish national team. And I do, I factor yeah. that in as well here because, um, you know, they're just going to be viewed as the foundational players for that program, right? Throughout the last 20 years. And um, some of the most successful guys to make the translation uh, and transition to the NBA as well. And I think they, they're going to reward that. They're also just great citizens, both of them. And I think that that matters kind of in the Hall of Fame conversation too, right? Both those guys have had huge impacts on their communities. They've done, um, you know, great work off the court. They've been very good leaders. Um, and I think that they're very well respected, you know, by their teammates. I mean, you go back to the idea of like Marcus Gasol winning the title in Toronto and his first call is Mike Conley, you know? It's like moments like that, I think, stick with people and they just, you know, there's a genuine kindness and a... And they're also both good with the media, frankly, too, which I, I think helps, you know, <laughs> build them some buzz as well. I mean, they add it all up. I don't see how you're mm-hmm. keeping them out. I mean, I don't know. In the hall of just sublime human beings, both of them first ballot instantly. 
Michael, you're not going to believe this. I just looked up Marc Gasol's Hall of Fame odds. Basketball reference gives him a 4.2% chance Damn. of making the Hall. How is that possible? I feel like the the um, the formula is broken right now, Michael. That doesn't sound right at all. <laughs> That's pretty comical because, uh, like, like Rajan Rondo is below like Paul <laughs> Millsap. Like no, yeah, and Rajan Rondo is like at sixty percent right now. I think um, so. Yeah, that is that is shocking. I gotta say, I think it's just because. His career, like the peak doesn't match up with the career, I think, when you just look at some of these stats here, just going through his resume. Um, but yeah, no, 4.2 is a slap in the face. I'm sorry. Well, so by comparison, Pau Gasol, according to the formula, is 93.4%, which yeah. seems low too, honestly. But um, <laughs> that's crazy. I we need to Can we have a congressional investigation into Marcus Gasol's basketball reference Hall of Fame odds? Because that seems completely wrong. Yeah, no, nothing else is going on. This is the perfect time for that. So <laughs> <Yeah>. I think <laughs> get right on it. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic Gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Nikki Glaser Podcast. Her roast of Tom Brady stole the show. Now she's talking about it on the latest episode of the Nikki Glaser Podcast. I said, tell Tom Brady that I'm the Tom Brady of roasting. Lots of people roasted the goat, but only Nikki is still being talked about. Every time I refresh my DMs, it's 14 blue check marks of people I didn't even know who knew me are writing like paragraphs to me. Hear that in all episodes of the Nikki Glaser Podcast on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Nikki Glaser Podcast to start listening. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans. The chaos in Washington, D.C. 
and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Got a question from Brad in Tampa. He writes, we're 15 years removed from high school players being eligible for the NBA draft. If my research is correct, there are three players still on active rosters who were preps to pros, and all three coincidentally just won a title, LeBron James, Dwight Howard, and J.R. Smith. Granted, that's a small sample size, but isn't this more evidence that the high school NBA experiment was never bad for the NBA? If you look at productivity or longevity by draft position, I would imagine the high school players more than held their own during that stretch. I'd love seeing these players in college for a year and would imagine it helps GMs draft even more accurately. But from a player's perspective, they're not the problem, right? What do you guys think? So, Michael, do you, do you get what he's going for here? He's basically saying if you look at the track record of the preps to pros players, yes, there were going to be some washouts along the way, but there's washouts yeah. of guys who go one and done. Does sure. the success of the best preps to pros players justify the entire idea? In other words, should the NBA bring back the preps to pros like it's been talking about? I mean, I think it should 100% bring it back. Um, I, I would not, you know, if I was arguing a case in court, I don't think I would use uh, LeBron, Dwight Howard, and J.R. Smith and them winning a championship this past year as my evidence. Um, I just think it's it should be up to the player uh, to take that risk, take that leap. I think players are more mature physically and mentally now than they were when LeBron entered the league. And I think the league is more prepared to embrace young talent like that with the programs that the MBPA particular has. So, I mean, it's kind of a no-brainer for me for this to go back to the way that it was, and that's a huge hit for college basketball, I suppose. That's a, that's a bummer. Um, but I don't really care about college basketball, so uh, that stinks for them. And I guess the other thing is just like, uh, you know, it's a risk, quote-unquote, for teams uh, that don't have the same type of uh, uh, evidence for themselves to kind of look at and study these guys. And, you know, making a lottery pick is a huge choice for any organization. But, like, the draft is a crapshoot as it is. As you said, like, you could be a one and done and totally flame out. So, uh, I, I mean, it's just like give players the freedom to make their choices, make their money. Like, it's just it's a, it's a no-brainer to me. It always has been. Yeah, no, I'm with you. And I think, he, you know, he makes some good points. There have been a lot of success stories. I think that the success stories wind up almost transcending the preps to pros conversation. And LeBron actually makes a point regularly to, to like, when, especially when he's comparing himself to Kobe, he'll say, you know, we both did the preps to pros thing. It's almost like a badge of honor for him. And, um, you know, it's something that a lot of other players, you know, can't really relate to. And I think um, the NBA is, you know, better able to accommodate those kinds of players now. The G League is way more advanced than it was, you know, uh, mm -hmm. you know even five or ten years ago in terms of number of teams, number of coaches, uh, you know, just uh, overall support there. The, the, the back and forth that players can have between the NBA and the G League um, has become, uh, you know, smoothed out a little bit. So, you know, it's, it's no longer... This, you know, uh, mark of shame if you're a rookie who gets sent down, you know, it, it's understandable. And I think for high school guys, it would be totally understandable if you get drafted, even if you're a first round pick that you might spend part of your rookie year going down there. I think there's just less stigma. 
So to me, I hope they proceed forward. It's still been a hangup. I do think there are teams that would prefer to still have that extra year of evaluation just because it it cuts down on possible misses and, and gives mm-hmm. uh, you know the evaluators more time to look. But um, especially in the case of the truly talented uh, teenager, uh, teenage high schoolers, I'm glad that they're exploring stuff like um, you know this this G League select team. I think that's an awesome compromise. I don't see a lot of benefit for some of these players going to college and, and being forced to you know play by the NCAA's rules and and regulations, uh, especially yeah. when they're such well known commodities at you know 15, 16 years old. It just kind of seems like a dog and pony show to me. So I'm glad there all are alternatives. And I'm also glad there are domestic alternatives that don't require guys going, you know, to Lithuania or to Australia to just get a paycheck because I think that that can be a little bit damaging. Um, just you know, from a, a development and a psychological standpoint, I think it's better if you you know stay here, get comfortable, get yourself ready for the NBA system, and go forward. So I'm hopeful that, that the steps the NBA has taken in that direction will continue, and I do expect it to benefit those kinds of players and, and get them whether it's the earlier sneaker deals or other endorsement opportunities, kind of like get them into that professional lifestyle more quickly um, and uh, smoothly than has been the case maybe, you know, during this, uh, you know, rigid era of one and done. All right, Michael, I want to close up with a uh, email from Ricky and Oxnard Shores. And he sent this one in Dodger blue font. Okay. And Ricky says, uh, Los Angeles is indebted to Boston, its fans and its sports teams. Boston has paved the way for the City of Angels to capture two titles in not only the same year, but the same month. The Lakers won the NBA title two weeks ago, and maybe in a week, the Dodgers will have won the World Series. Boston wouldn't trade Jalen Brown or Jason Tatum for Anthony Davis. That equaled the Lakers getting Anthony Davis and winning their 17th banner to pull even with the Boston Celtics. Then the Boston Red Sox wouldn't pay Mookie Betts his fair market value. That equals the Dodgers trading for him and now sitting three wins away from a World Series title. Michael, on behalf of Massachusetts everywhere, you're the official delegate spokesperson. How do you respond to Ricky and Oxnard Shores, who makes a lot of good points. No, I mean, first off the top, I just want to say I'm re, I'm re uh, looking at our friendship right now, Ben, for you <laughs> including this email on the pod. Um, we didn't need this. This was a low blow. Uh, I, <laughs> I, uh, I mean, I guess I'll address the Lakers first. Great Lakers, you won the championship. Um, I, I mean, like, the Celtics were never going to trade Tatum or Jalen for AD. That was just, like, uh, that's just, that would be a dumb decision on their part because Anthony Davis would have left in free agency. That's just what it is. And he probably would have sat out the season with a sprained ankle or something like that, as he did in his last season with the Pelicans. So, I, yeah, I have no fault with the Celtics not parting ways with one of their best young players. Um, yeah, the Red Sox are just complete garbage organization, um, and wow. their their decision not to. Oh, I I had to get rid of. I had a Mookie Betts T shirt that I had to. I had a Mookie Betts Jumpman T shirt where he's catching a fly ball with his legs spread like Michael Jordan. You would have loved this shirt, and I had to get rid of it. It was too painful. Couldn't wear it in public anymore. Um, I'll just never forgive the Red Sox for them not paying this man his money and then watching him just like obliterate the Tampa Bay Rays in game one of the World Series was like the hardest uh, baseball game I've had to watch uh, in 
A long time. So, uh, you know, I, <laughs> this I'm, is I'm, why I'm, I included the question. This is great. I'm <laughs> loving this. Wait, so are you a big baseball guy? We've never talked about baseball before. Do you follow it carefully or no? I was a very big baseball fan, uh, I would say, up until the second Red Sox World Series. So, like, my fandom probably peaked around 2004, 2003, 2004, when every pitch in October was like do or die, and the Yankees were this hated rival like I don't really watch too many baseball games now and it was just really tough to like follow the team after I mean the whole thing with being a Red Sox fan in my opinion was like what like you just wanted to see them win the World Series uh and once they did a few times it was kind of like okay baseball (laughs) like baseball is just kind of a boring sport I don't want to sit through 162 games or whatever it is um so I'm I'm not a huge fan anymore, but once the Red Sox traded Mookie, like my ears perked up. He was my favorite player on the team, uh, and it was just disgraceful. Like I was trying to look for ways because I don't understand, you know, the the baseball baseball doesn't have a salary cap. I was just like so befuddled by the decision, and no one could explain it to me except for the owners being cheap. So I was like, as someone who's been to Fenway Park many times, I lived like a block away my last year in Boston. You know, like uh, a a glass of beer there, a, a Heineken is like, you know, nineteen dollars. It was just like, <laughs> what is going on? How can you not afford this, dude? So, um, yeah, I could go on for like the next twenty minutes on a rant about this, but I, I will last. The last thing I'll say is like, half of me wants Mookie to win the World Series um, because, like, you know, I really want him to win. He's awesome. He's an awesome dude, an awesome player, probably one of the best players of his generation. And then the other half of me is just like super spiteful, and like I do not want LA to win two titles in a month, and like, yeah. So I, like the, the Boston, the Bostonian in me is just kind of like go Tampa, which is also really tough. So I don't, I just don't even know how to root in this in this series. But no, I will say you're, that Ricky, you're conflicted. Ricky, you're conflicted. Ricky, yeah, Ricky has cursed the the Dodgers with this email. I just want to throw that out there, though. Yeah. I would have never written an email like this. I did worry about that from Ricky's perspective because he sent it before game two. Apparently, game two didn't go quite so well for the Dodgers. No, it didn't. So here's here's my side of the whole Mookie Betts thing. I am very... Uh, I used to love baseball when I was a kid, but I just don't have time for it anymore. But every once in a while, I will hop on the postseason bandwagon with the Dodgers just because everybody in LA gets so excited. So I'm like the fakest Dodger fan of all time. Like I, I can name <laughs> like six players, you know, max... When they play against opposing teams, I can't name a single guy on the opposing team. And I didn't even know who Mookie Betts was until the Dodgers traded for him. And I remember it oh, being wow. I remember it being a big deal when they traded for him. And I was like, oh, that's cool. But then the pandemic happens, everything gets delayed. I completely forgot about the Mookie Betts trade. Didn't even know it existed. I turn on game one of the World Series, and here is like the greatest baseball player since what, Mickey Mantle? <laughs> like, I mean, like Willie Mays. It's like Willie Mays Jr. out there stealing all these bases and cranking home runs, doing all this other stuff. And and I go on to Twitter and all I see is people doing the exact rant you just did about the Heineken beer. Tweet after tweet after tweet <laughs> after tweet, making fun of the Red Sox owners. I was just dying laughing. And then I felt like I had missed out on probably like a year's worth of, of Boston slander because I just hadn't followed like the biggest trade in the last five years of baseball. So I guess that one's on me. No, and it's like it's it's tough because no Red Sox. I mean, there are some Red Sox fans who were like, like I don't even know. This was like the ultimate green beer, except it's like red beer. I don't even know, like the drinkers who. Yeah, it's like are the just so the, the one America uh, one America News Network version of the Red Sox experience. 
and exactly and so like there's those people who are just like oh they had to trade him because they would have lost him for nothing it's just like you you have no idea what you're talking about shut up um so yeah they should have paid him 400 million dollars whatever it costs he's like the best player in baseball the best player baseball has seen in years decades generations i mean it's just it's still a travesty i can't even so i'm really sad that you got me going and now i'm i'm like gonna have a terrible day so thank well, you very much for that <laughs> my, my only apology here is that we didn't lead with this because this is great I, I hate to bury this <laughs> 60 minutes into an episode but you sound worked up so let me ask you this what is the equivalent for the celtics that would make you as mad as a Mookie B- uh, Betts trade. Like, is there anything the Celtics could yeah. do? Yeah, I got something for you. Okay. Um, they offer Jason Tatum the veterans minimum oh, this summer. <laughs> <laughs> and Tatum, they don't give him the qualifying offer. Uh, he, you know, demands a trade. They trade him to the Brooklyn Nets for uh, Jared Allen. That's basically what this was. Wow. Well, I hope that happens. That'd be funny. That'd be great content for us. <laughs> Open floor would go in some dark directions if that happens. All right, Michael, on that note, I think we've reached the end of another episode. Guys, you can check us out on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review. Tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. Now, Michael's on Instagram and Twitter at Michael and Victor Pina. I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golver on Twitter at Ben Golver. You can please email the show, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. We will be back next week with more off-season talk, probably some more coaching hires or at least rumors to discuss. And we're going to be ramping up all these trade scenarios and everything else. So if you've got a favorite pet trade for your favorite team or your least favorite team that might not be as dark as Jason Tatum to the Brooklyn Nets, please let us know. We'd be glad to have it. Like I said, the email is openfloormail at gmail.com. All right, Michael. Until next week, I'll talk to you. Talk soon. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. 
Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Nikki Glaser Podcast. Her roast of Tom Brady stole the show. Now she's talking about it on the latest episode of the Nikki Glaser Podcast. I said, tell Tom Brady that I'm the Tom Brady of roasting. Lots of people roasted the goat, but only Nikki is still being talked about. Every time I refresh my DMs, it's 14 blue check marks of people I didn't even know who knew me are writing like paragraphs to me. Hear that in all episodes of the Nikki Glaser Podcast on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Nikki Glaser Podcast to start listening.